and welcome back for another episode. I just want to mention how grateful I am to those of you that listened to episode one and took the time to give me honest feedback. I actually had way more downloads than I anticipated and although this is something I am doing for fun, I also want to learn and become better. So thank you. All right, let's get into this case. Today, I want to talk to you about a heavy case. A case involving blunt force trauma, body dissolving, identity theft, and even blood drinking. And who was responsible for these horrific crimes, you may ask? A man by the name of John George Hay, otherwise known as the Acid Bath Murderer. This case piqued my interest due to the fact that concentrated sulfuric acid was used in the disposal of the victims' bodies. Now, it's not uncommon for me to ask people how they would dispose of a body, you know, if you happen to commit murder and need to destroy any evidence, standard stuff. While I, for one, have always been fascinated in the use of concentrated sulfuric acid as a means to break down human remains. I know, this is starting to feel like some Breaking Bad shit, and perhaps the show itself has given people the idea that it's a foolproof plan, as long as no bathtub is actually used. I guess what I'm trying to say is, using acid as a means to erase any trace of human remains, mm, yeah, probably not so smart, and Hay just happens to be a fine example of exactly how it could all go oh so wrong. It was 1944 in London when Hay committed his very first murder. London in the 40s was an unsettling time. Many people were involved in military services, whilst others were living off food rations and finding shelter in underground stations or wherever they could. Hay's first victim was William McSwan, a wealthy amusement park owner. Hay didn't fall upon McSwan by chance. I mean, he didn't just see this guy one day and decide to kill him. No, all of Hay's moves were calculated. Hay met McSwan in 1943 after scoring a job as his personal chauffeur in London. The two formed a solid friendship, and all was well during Hay's employment. McSwan was a fairly average-looking guy, with a lean build, prominent eyebrows and a thin moustache. It would have been his suits and flashy cars that made him stand out. Now things may have seemed fine between Hay and McSwan, but things were very different a year later. Hay had just served time for fraud. In fact, by 1944, it was actually Hay's third imprisonment. With three stunts in prison under his belt, Hay had a lot of time to think, and for whatever reason, Hay started researching French serial killer Georges Alexandre Sarrette, whose signature had been dissolving his victims in sulfuric acid. Hay carried out his own acid experimentations on mice and found that it took approximately 30 minutes to dissolve the mice completely. So when Hay, after being released from prison, ran into McSwan, the seed was already planted. McSwan was at a pub with his parents, Donald and Amy, one night. Some sources say Hay and McSwan arranged to meet up. Others say it was a coincidence. Either way, the two got chatting. At some point during this encounter, McSwan had told Hay about the property investments that his parents had made. And just like that, 
McSwan had put a big red target on not only his own, but also his parents' backs. Hay lured McSwan into a basement at 79 Gloucester Road, London. The basement was small but secure, three unfurnished rooms with thick brick walls, a concrete ceiling, a blocked-off staircase to the offices above, two locked doors and no windows. It was empty except for a few pinball machine parts, a length of lead pipe, a rusty hand axe, a manhole cover to the main drain, a Winchester of hydrochloric acid, and two 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric acid. It was this very basement that Hay hit McSwan over the head with a kosh, which is kind of like a baton-type weapon. He then put the body into a 40-gallon drum, which he poured concentrated sulfuric acid into. Hay checked the drum two days later and found that the body was nothing but sludge, so he poured McSwan's body sludge remains down a manhole. Initially, Hay told Donald and Amy that their son had run away in order to avoid being drafted for military services, and at first they seemed to buy it. With McSwan out of the way, Hay took over McSwan's house and landlord responsibilities. I've gathered that it was a lot easier to forge documents back in the 40s, and Hay was actually very good at it. So Hay was living the life, um, but eventually, when McSwan didn't return home from war at the end of World War II, his parents started asking questions and showing suspicion. This concerned Hay, so naturally, he killed both of them in the same basement and under the same circumstances as their son. With Donald and Amy out of the way, Hay was able to reap further benefits. Hay stole Donald McSwan's pension checks, sold their properties and moved into Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington which was an upper-class hotel that mainly accommodated wealthy widows. The Onslow Court Hotel is now known as the Kensington Hotel, and it still includes a lot of the original architecture, such as the four large statement entranceway pillars. For some time, Hay was able to live a luxurious life and gamble away the money he had stolen from the McSwans, but eventually he realised that he would need to find a way to secure more money. Hay found a wealthy couple, Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose. The couple were selling their home and Hay pretended to be interested. He began to get close to the couple and formed a friendship. Hay presented himself so charismatic that Rose even asked Hay to play the piano at their new housewarming party. During the housewarming, Hay stole Dr. Archibald's 38 caliber Webley revolver. Not long after the housewarming, Hay managed to lure Archibald to a workshop he was renting out at 2 Leopold Road, Crawley, West Sussex. The fact Hay had formed a friendship with the couple made the execution so much easier. His victims trusted him and unknowingly walked straight into their deaths. Once inside, Hay shot Dr. Archibald with the stolen revolver. He then managed to lure Rose to the workshop by telling her that her husband had fallen ill. Rose was also shot on arrival. Hay had already prepared two 40-gallon drums and enough concentrated sulfuric acid for his latest victims. It seemed with a few victims already under his belt and not getting caught, Hay was feeling a bit too confident. Despite one of Archibald's feet not dissolving, Hay still disposed of the sludge remains in the foot in a corner of the yard at the workshop site. Hay sold the couple's possessions and their property, and then gave many of Rose's clothes to his own girlfriend, 
In an attempt to make the couple appear to still be alive, Hay even wrote a letter to Rose's brother, pretending to be her. But apparently, Rose's brother was suspicious and he wanted to go to the police. Hay managed to convince him that the couple had just gone to South Africa as Archibald, being a doctor, was needed to perform an illegal abortion. Hay's final known victim was that of Olive Duran Deacon, a wealthy old widow, whom he had met whilst living in Onslow Court Hotel. Just like the previous time, Hay was starting to run low on money and he needed to find his next victim. He began his planning. At this time, Hay is claiming to be working at an engineering firm and Olive was interested in speaking with him about an idea she had around artificial fingernails. Unfortunately, this avid inventor made herself an easy target as Hay was able to get closer to her without really needing to put himself out there. Olive was lured to the same workshop as Hay's two previous victims, and once inside the workshop, Hay shot Olive in the back of the neck with the same revolver that he had stolen and used to kill Dr. Archibald and Rose Henderson. Hay simply poured Olive's remains on some rubble out the back of the workshop. The sloppy work was easily uncovered by investigators later on. It was two days after the disappearance of Olive when a friend reported her missing. None of the missing people had been connected at this point, and this is the first time police have been made aware of any of Hay's victims. So let's recap real quick. Hay has murdered and attempted to dissolve his mate, Mick Swan, Mick Swan's parents, Donald and Amy, Dr. Archibald and Rose Henderson, and finally, Olive Durand Deacon. It's actually very lucky Olive had a friend who noticed her missing and decided to report her missing only two days after seeing her last. You hear of so many missing person cases where friends and family don't even realise that they're missing for a number of weeks. Sergeant Lambourne was assigned to Olive's case, and following an interview with the friend who reported her missing, Lambourne also interviewed Hay, as he lived at the hotel and had been seen associating with her. Lambourne found it odd that Hay was living there, as the hotel guests were mainly made up of the elderly, Aside from finding this strange, Lambourne also just had a generally uneasy feeling about Hay, which left her thinking he could be involved some way. Hay did tell Lambourne that he had seen Olive the day that she had disappeared, with a red handbag and wearing a black Persian fur coat. Following this interview, a tally description of Olive was sent out to all police divisions by an inspector Symes. But Symes had already started looking further into Hay after hearing of Lambourne's suspicions. Symes and his colleague, Detective Inspector Webb, went back to Onslow Hotel to question the hotel manager, Miss Robbie. She told them that she had never seen any visitors with Hay, and that he wore expensive clothes and drove flashy cars. He was also late paying for his room recently, which he had conveniently settled just two days before Olive was reported missing. Symes and Webb went upstairs to speak to Hay in his room, where he willingly invited them in. Hay recalled the same statement he had told Lambourne earlier in the day, including that he had seen her leaving the lobby with a red handbag and wearing a black Persian fur coat. What Hay didn't realise was that Inspector Symes already knew him. He had questioned Hay years earlier and knew that he had been done for being a con man. Further background checks on Hay were looked into, but his countless fraud charges didn't exactly equate to him being a cold-blooded killer. Things may have started to feel stale for Symes, until he got a lucky break 
a lucky break in the form of a witness. The witness had seen and spoken to Olive in the lobby the morning of the day that she would be murdered. Olive told the individual that she was driving to Crawley with hate as he had invited her to his workshop. With this information, Symes was able to get a warrant and Hay's workshop was searched. Initially, there wasn't much to alarm officers. The workshop itself was sparse, with just a couple of boxes, some tools and some empty bottles of sulfuric acid. Hay had painted over the windows of the workshop, so it was dark and dingy. The first item to raise concern was a locked leather hat box, which was taken into evidence. In case you're like me and you don't know what a hat box is, just imagine a circular-shaped briefcase. Once the hat box had been forced open, the contents really gave Hay no chance of escaping conviction. The contents included the 38 caliber Webley revolver he had stolen from Dr. Archibald Henderson, eight rounds of ammunition in an envelope, heavy red cellophane paper, and a receipt from a drive cleaning shop for a black Persian fur coat. The very coat Hay had told Sergeant Lambourne he had seen Olive wearing on the day she went missing. Aside from Hay's coat statement, Detectives were able to gather further evidence after scoping out town and talking to different people who may have seen Olive or Hay. The receptionist at the George Hotel in Crawley had remembered a woman in a fur coat being driven to the hotel to use the bathroom. The receptionist also identified Hay as the man that had driven her there. There was also a jeweller in the town of Horsham nearby who confirmed that he had been sold pieces of jewellery from Hay, which matched the description of jewellery Olive always wore. Hay clearly wasn't very good at covering up his tracks because a search of his hotel room came up with a shirt covered in bloodstains and a penknife with some blood on it. Detectives also found a recovered shopping list written by Hay, which included items for which he could dispose of another body, including carboys of acid, rubber gloves, cellophane and cotton wadding, as well as the fur coat and some jewellery. Finally, Hay admits to all of the killings and an additional three, which were never able to be confirmed. Perhaps he made these additional murders up in a bid to appear more insane at trial, or perhaps he really did carry out a total of nine murders. Along with admitting to the additional three murders, Hay also admitted to drinking his victim's blood before leaving their bodies in the acid. He also claimed that this is what made him insane. This was never proven though, But his fixation on vampires from a young age makes this not so difficult to believe. I know I like to believe it's true. It just adds to the total fuckery of this case. Along with Hay's admission, he told detectives, quote, If I tell you the truth, you would not believe it. The truth sounds too fantastic for belief. Mrs. Duran Deacon no longer exists. She disappeared completely and no trace of her can be found again. I have destroyed her with acid. Every trace is gone. How can you prove murder if there is no body? End quote. But every trace wasn't gone. Forensics soon realised that the brown sludge behind the workshop was human remains, and on closer inspection, pathologist Keith Simpson found 28 pounds of body fat, pieces of pelvic bone, two discs from her lower spine, a handbag, a lipstick container, a hairpin, a notebook, stones and part of a denture, which was identified as Olive Duran Deacon's dentures at trial by her dentist. Simpson also found fragments of Olive's left foot, which, when reconstructed, fully fitted one of her shoes perfectly. 
it's hard to find sympathy towards someone like Kay. But I also want to highlight the fact that he didn't exactly have an easy or even normal upbringing. Hay was born in 1909, Stamford, Lincolnshire, England, to Emily and John Hay. Yes, him and his father shared the same name, and this was super common back then. After Hay was born, the three of them moved from Stamford to a village of Outwood, West Yorkshire, where Hay was then raised. It's important that we consider Hay's childhood, as I believe this is a big reason for who he became later in his life. Emily and John were members of the Plymouth Brethren, an extremely conservative and anti-modern Protestant sect who advocated for very simple and secluded lives. Hay grew up in the confinements of a three-metre or ten-foot fence that his father had put up around their garden as a means to block out the outside world. Later on in life, Hay claimed that he suffered from reoccurring nightmares relating to the religious practices that he grew up with, and many of these dreams were focused on blood. As a child, Hay emerged himself into music and was obviously quite an impressive pianist, as he was awarded a scholarship at Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, the city's independent school for boys. During this time, he was a chorister at the Wakefield Cathedral, being described as, quote, a brainy lad but a bit of a loner, end quote. Hay's childhood dream was to become a vampire, which, paired with the blood dreams, feels like some pretty heavy foreshadowing onto his later claims of drinking his victim's blood. Following Hay's school days, he went on to work in a series of short-lived jobs, including apprenticing for a firm of motor engineers and also insurance and advertising. Hay married Betty Hammer in July of 1934, but this marriage didn't last long. When Hay was in prison for fraud, Betty gave birth and quickly made the decision to give the child up for adoption and divorce Hay. It was while Hay was serving time that his conservative family also decided that they no longer wanted anything to do with him. When Hay was released from prison, it wasn't long before he was imprisoned again for his involvement in a fraud scam for hire for purchase cars. Following his second release from prison, it seemed like Hay was ready to sort his shit out, so he got into the dry cleaning business. And no, I did not find any evidence of money laundering there. It was at this point where his business partner was killed in a motorbike accident, and the business went under. That is when Hay found the chauffeuring job for McSwan, and you know the rest. After the arrest, Hay remained in custody in cell 2 of Horsham Police Station on Bartolot Road. The cell door from his incarceration is now preserved in Horsham Museum. Hay was charged with murder and had his first appearance before magistrates on 1st of April 1949 at the nearby courthouse in what is now known as the Old Town Hall, after which the full trial was held at Lewis Arsize. It became apparent that Hay had been using the acid to destroy victims' bodies because he mistakenly believed that if the bodies could not be found, a murder conviction would not be possible. Despite the absence of his victims' bodies, there was sufficient forensic evidence for him to be convicted for the murders. It only took minutes for the jury to find Hay guilty. Mr Justice Travis Humphreys sentenced him to death. It was reported that Hay, in the condemned cell at Wandsworth Prison, asked one of the prison guards, Jack Morwood, whether it would be possible to have a trial run of his hanging so everything would run smoothly. Just prior to his execution, Hay was asked if he wanted a brandy. He replied, quote, Make it a large one, old boy. End quote. Hay was then led to the gallows and hanged by executioner 
Albert Pereypoint on 10th of August 1949. If you're into the heavy metal scene, there is a song by Macabre. Like, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but anyway. The song's called Acid Bath Monster. Not really my jam, so I'll leave that tune to you guys. But I did want to end this episode with a line from that song. Quote, Now that you're dead, in a metal drum you'll stay. I pump the acid in to melt your corpse away. End quote. And that's episode two, The Acid Bath Murderer. I really appreciate everyone that's taken the time to listen to this. And if you want to give me any more feedback, I would also very much appreciate that. If you haven't already, please subscribe to me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll get notifications when I um, produce an episode. And follow me on Instagram at Shutter Podcast, where I also will be updating. Thanks so much.